0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause and I hope you're staying happy, healthy and safe. It is a big, big, big show so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Barry Average, director of The Talented Mr. Rosenberg, a new documentary about a lifelong con artist with an absolutely stunning history of heartbreaking betrayal, outrageous lies and elaborate masquerades. It's a cool story, but that's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Fab Filippo co-creator, executive producer, and co-showrunner of the CBC original series, Sort Of. We'll talk about the hit show and how the stories in Sort Of resonate across all genders, races, and ages. They are universal no matter how one identifies. We'll get to that soon. First, let's get to know Billboard's top new country artist of 2021 and CMT's 2022 breakout artist of the year, Lainey Wilson. Her highly anticipated album, Bell Bottom Country, is out now wherever you legally buy and download music, and she recently announced a 27-city headlining tour that will visit Vancouver and Edmonton next year. Bell Bottom Country draws its title directly from the name that people use to describe the Louisiana native's unique style and aesthetic. It's country, but with flair, mixing in elements of 70s rock, funk, and soul. We talk about her new record, what influence Miley Cyrus had on her career, and I'll tell you, it's not what you might think, and why she only wears bell bottomed jeans. Here's Lainey Wilson. congratulations on the new album
1: thank you very much it's out no turning back now
0: i know it must be an exciting thing you've probably been working on this for some time now the songs are very personal how are you feeling today
1: i am feeling great and i'll tell you i'm just i'm so excited that it's finally out just like you said we have been working on this thing for a long time you know my first record those songs were written in like 2017 18 and i recorded them in 19 so i've had I feel like I've had just as much time to write for this record as I did the last one. So it's been a labor of love.
0: Did the pandemic get in the way at all for you?
1: You know what? Um, For my songwriting, it actually did not at all. It gave me an opportunity to really be, prepared for this record. I wrote 300 plus songs during the pandemic. And um, I mean, not all of them were good, but yeah. they all served a purpose.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, how does that work? So is it important for you when you say you you wrote 300 songs, that's one every two days or something like that? Uh, it mm-hmm. Does it feel like you just have to get it down just to get it out of your head and get it on paper and so you can move along to the next thing?
1: Absolutely. I do feel like you know, even the bad songs serve a purpose. And I think it's just to get me to that next one. Um, yes. There's definitely times when I'm sitting down writing a song and, and I have the thought of, you know, of course I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, But I, you know, there's times where I have feelings of like this song is never going to see the light of day, <laughs> but that's all right. You know, you just gotta, yeah. you just gotta write those and um just to get you to the next thing. And that's what it was. We were just, we were writing anything and everything just to make sure that I had, what i felt like i needed for bell bottom country
0: when did you start writing songs do you remember the first song you ever wrote
1: oh yeah i was yeah. i was 9 years old <laughs> um i wrote a song called lucky me it sounded a little bit like a britney spears song um but even at 10 years old 11 years old i mean i was writing songs about tequila and cigarettes and <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't even have to keel in cigarettes in the house. It was just, I was listening to the other country songs and um, I knew that's what they had talked about. So I was writing it too.
0: <laughs> Probably from a fairly naive point of view, though, I would imagine
1: absolutely. Yeah. My parents were like, what in the world? (laughs) I said, I was wise beyond my years.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned Britney Spears, but you also mentioned that, you know, country music was something that you were listening to and certainly being influenced by. Um, What was it about country music that, that grabbed your ear?
1: Where I'm from, which is Northeast Louisiana. um, If you've ever heard of Monroe, Louisiana, I'm from a town about 30 miles South of there called Baskin and its population 200 and some change and um where I'm from I mean country music is truly life I didn't even realize as a little girl that country music was a genre we just we lived out those words and we lived out those songs so country music was pretty much the soundtrack to my childhood and um to my, to my parents lives too so um it was just what we listened to going down the road on the tractor with daddy in the kitchen with mama it was just a part of my life. And so there was no escaping it for me. And when I ended up writing my first song at nine years old, I got bit by the bug. And then my daddy showed me a few chords on the guitar at 11 years old. And um I took a few lessons. And after that, I mean, that was pretty much all she wrote. It was one of those things that I felt like, Kind of chose me, you know, and I I feel yeah. like I had no other option but to see it through.
0: You're listening to Lainey Wilson on the Richard Krause show, find her new album, Bell Bottom Country, wherever fine music is sold. Did you ever have other jobs along the way other than music?
1: You know what? I've always been able to play music. My job through high school was impersonating Hannah Montana. I did three or four birthday parties a weekend. I did fairs and festivals and uh birthday parties, Saint Jude, you name it, I did it. So and even at sixteen and seventeen years old, I was I was playing with a band called the Cadillac Kings in uh, the Arklamas area, which is like Arkansas, Louisiana, yeah. Mississippi. Really wasn't even old enough to be getting into the into the bars and the clubs, but um we figured it out. So I've always been able to make ends meet by playing music. And, um, it's just been such a a huge blessing.
0: What do you think you learned from, you know, playing in these bars when you were underage doing the Hannah Montana shows, you take something away from every experience that you have. What do you think you learned from those?
1: Oh my gosh. I could sit here all day and tell you everything I learned. Um, But I will say for me, and especially with the Hannah Montana gig, um, and I was opening up for myself. So I'd be like, hey, can Lainey Wilson open up the show? And they're like, who's Laney Wilson? I'm like, the person you hired to be Hannah Montana. Um, But, yeah, you know, one day I would be playing a little three-year-old's birthday party, and the next day, or maybe even in the same day, I'd be playing a nurse at home. So I really had to figure out how to adjust, how to adjust to my uh, audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that has really come in handy because even nowadays, you know, I mean, I might be playing an arena one night or I might be playing a, you know, a beer drinking bar or I could be playing a theater the next day. And it's it's just figuring out how to adjust, not changing who you are, uh, but figuring out how to like come across to certain people. And um, I think it helped me. And it also taught me that this thing ain't going to be easy. You know, I mean, I was. I was playing these shows when all of my friends were headed down to Baton Rouge to go to LSU ball games on the weekends and I was just putting in that time cuz I I knew that I wanted to do this in the long run and I knew that these were the steps I needed to take in order to be ready for that.
0: And to do it in the long run you really have to be in Nashville. And tell me about what it was like when you first got to Nashville. There's music absolutely everywhere, uh, Mm -hmm. but the best players in the world are there, which could be maybe intimidating uh, for Mm -hmm. a new person in the city. Tell me what it was like for you.
1: You know, so I've always known that I wanted to be in Nashville. Actually, a couple of weeks after I wrote my first song, my mom and daddy took me on a family vacation to Gatlinburg and um, on the way home to Louisiana. I pretty much begged them just to drive through Nashville. And I remember exactly where I was on the interstate in the back seat. I was staring at the Batman building. And I told my mom and daddy at nine years old, I said, This is home. I just knew it. I knew that I wanted to write country music. I knew I wanted to tell stories. Didn't know how in the world I was going to get there, but I knew I was one day. So, 19 years old, um, I was going to college in Monroe. And I decided, okay, if I'm really going to do this thing, I need to be there. So um, I ended up buying a Flagstaff bumper pull camper trailer <laughs> and <laughs> hauling it to Nashville. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what it was going to look like or feel like, but I'll say I've never had a plan B. It's always been plan A. And I knew that I was moving to a town, just like you said, was with these people who are, I mean, who have been there for years working mm-hmm. and perfecting their craft. And I just knew that I was going to have to do the same exact thing and that I needed to start somewhere. So, uh, there was a guy from my hometown. His name was Jerry Cupit, and went back in the late seventies. He actually had a dream to move to Nashville and be a songwriter producer. Well, um, he didn't have enough money to move to Nashville and get started. So my grandfather on my daddy's side actually gave him a few hundred dollars to help him move to get started. So as a favor in return, he let me park my camper in his studio parking lot in Nashville for free for the first three years I was there. And, um, he was the only person I knew in town at that time, but I will say, of course it was intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to get in these writing rooms with these incredible songwriters and artists and musicians because I wanted to learn and I wanted to grow. And, um, I always say, you know, I want to be the worst writer in the room. And that's the truth. I want to feel like I've left there um, finding something out about life or myself that I didn't before. Country
0: fans in particular, they want authenticity. Mm-hmm. And you hear it in the grooves of this record.
1: Well, I'll take that. Yeah, it's very important to me to, uh, you know, stay true to me and my story yeah. and my sound. My producer, Mr. J. Joyce, he does such a great job at kind of stepping outside of the box and taking risk but at the same time keeping it me you know and i think we have both figured out what Bell bottom country truly is and with the first record we were just dipping our toes in and i'm still really really proud of that record but um i feel like the more we even get to know each other um you know it's just like i said it was a labor of love and i think the cool part about it is we're really just getting started and we're really just you know just putting it out there of of what we we feel like bell-bottom country is what it looks like what it sounds like all of it
0: you have uh an affection for bell-bottoms the pants themselves so we we see every photograph that i see of you you're wearing them and you know that's your that's your style but it's also kind of your musical style as well it it means something to you and what is it for sure
1: bell-bottom country uh it means country with a flair It's about, (laughs) no pun intended, actually pun intended, Um, but it's about leaning into whatever it is that makes you you and different. I mean, it could be where you're from, how you were raised, um, your style, your personality, your story, whatever it is, it's just about being that unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, I've just grown a whole lot over the past few years, not just as a singer and songwriter, but as a person. And I'm figuring out how to be, more comfortable in my own skin every single day. And I want people to be able to listen to this record and feel like they can do the exact same thing.
0: Talk about a song uh on the album called Weekend. Uh week, though, is spelled W-E-A-K-E-N-D. Uh there's some word playing there. What inspired that?
1: Oh man, we ain't gonna talk about him. <laughs> <I'm> just <laughs> <praying>. <laughs> Um I'm messing. Everybody wants somebody on the weekend. Of a time in my life where I was going through, you know, the weekend of heartbreak. Yeah. And um sometimes I think you got to go through those things in order to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I will say, um, I had this idea because of what I was going through and nobody wanted to write it with me. It just seemed like I just kept throwing the idea out there. And I don't I mean it, it's one of those ideas that can be really hard if you let it be, you know. But I found the the writers who Decided to tackle it with me, and it's really crazy because I I walked into this co-write and I was writing um, with two of my friends, Nicolette and Farron and I had the idea. I was I was bound and determined I was going to throw it out there again, even if it got shot down. But Nicolette had sat down at her piano and was like, "This is a melody I, w- I came up with in the middle of the night," and it's really crazy because you know most of the time in a writing room, somebody will bring an idea or somebody will bring a melody. But it's very rare when the idea that one person brings matches the melody of, of what the other person brings to the table, too. And the stars just align that day.
0: In low moments in your life, do you ever think, well, this would be a great song one day?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's what I chalk it up to for sure. <laughs> I'm like, there's times where I'm like, why in the world am I going through this? And then I kind of convince myself that. Maybe it is because I'm a songwriter and and maybe I'm supposed to feel certain things that way I can write songs that people can relate to and latch on to and Like I said, that's what I at least blame it on. Not me putting myself in a bad situation.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Lainey Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. Her new album, Bell Bottom Country, is available wherever fine music is sold. Tell me about recording the four non-blonde song, What's Up. Mm -hmm. It's a great song. But when I listen to it, when it comes on my radio, I don't necessarily think of a country song.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... Um, i love this song. I think Linda Perry is so cool for non-blondes. And I, um, I've been singing this song for years. Mm-hmm. I sang it back home. Like you just said, in the Arkhamus area, um, well, weren't you
0: just like one years old when it came out?
1: Probably, <laughs> 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 but the band I was playing with, they've been around the block a, right. a few decades. And, um, I was introduced to this song and I just loved it. I mean, I'd get up there and shake the tambourine and sing this song. And so actually last fall, I got to sit down with Linda Perry and and tell her how much I love the song and kind of get her blessing on recording it. So we did it. We put our own little country spin on it. And, um, you know, I mean, even when we were playing her version of it, the way that they even did the record, it still sounded country just because of the way that (laughs) I can, I can sing over anything. and It's going to sound country.
0: (laughs) And you you talk about Linda Perry. She uh, wrote that song and has written so many other hits for other people, but you're also uh, influenced and friendly with Miranda Lambert, another country music superstar. She's been a very strong supporter of yours. Um, What have you learned from her and what, what, how has that support kind of manifested itself?
1: It's crazy. You know, I don't I don't know of any females in Nashville who are trying to do country music who can't say that Miranda Lambert has not influenced them in mm-hmm. some way, um, whether it's her music or her attitude. Um, I look up to her a lot. I think that she is just she is who she says she is. But there ain't no in it. Um, yeah, And she has genuinely supported me. Um, I mean, she texts me weekly just to check in and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. You're crushing it. And I think it's important to have people like that who have, who've been there and done it, you know, who have paved the way for people like me. And it's exciting to think that maybe one day I can be that for somebody too. But Mm -hmm. she has talked to me about, I mean, whether it's haters online or whatever, like she gives me the best advice. She's like, if you can lay down at night and, you know, and know that your family and your closest friends are proud of you at the end of the day. Like, you know, you're putting a lot of your life out there, but they don't know the, they don't know you. They don't know the, you that's sitting on the couch every single night.
0: I've read this quote from you, and this is amazing. You said in an interview, I have slept in my own bed, a total of 10 nights this year. Is that (laughs) true?
1: That is true. It is very true. And It might have been 13 by now, Um, (laughs) but that's all right. I mean, this is what we signed up for and I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, everything that's happening right now. I mean, my team has worked the fingers to the bone
0: all the way from Hannah Montana to Yellowstone. You play Abby on Yellowstone. Uh, What, what brought you to this role?
1: So Yellowstone has been real good to me. I mean, they've put three of my songs in the show so far and, I got to actually go out to Vegas, um, and meet Taylor Sheridan, the writer and producer of the show. And, uh, we really just got to know each other and bonded over horses. I was, I was on a horse before I could even walk. And, um, we really just hit it off. You know, I was a fan of his, he was a fan of mine. We exchanged phone numbers and he's just the kind of dude, he's so personable. He's like, send me new music. When you start writing things, you know, just send it over my way. And, I kept in contact with him and he actually called me in February and said, I want to create a character specifically for you. And he said, I want you to pretty much just be yourself. You're going to go by a musician named Abby, but I want you to wear your bell bottoms and um, sing your own songs. And it's a huge opportunity. I mean, this is going to be a huge way for me to be able to share more of my music with the world and, you know, I didn't know it was going to look anything like this, but I've, I have made a promise to myself a long time ago that if it was a big opportunity, I was just going to run through the door no matter what, no matter how scary, just buck up and do it.
0: Music, though, remains your first love.
1: That's it. That's it. You know, I've, songwriting is where it started for me. That's what, that's what I was before anything. And, um, you know, I look at people's careers like Dolly and I look at Reba. And I've seen how they've been able to do both. Right. Um, and I and I just look up to them. I mean, I think they're fearless. I think uh, they have remained themselves throughout their entire career. Um, but just like them, the music is, is what is the most important to me because that's what has given me these opportunities to begin with.
0: That was Lainey Wilson. Find her album, Bell Bottom Country, wherever you buy fine music. My guest in this segment is award-winning actor, screenwriter, playwright, and director Fab Filippo. Now, as an actor, you know him from such projects as Lives of the Saints, starring opposite Sophia Loren, the indie hit Way Downtown, or maybe it's as Ethan Gold in the groundbreaking series Queer as Folk, or his stint on the hit television show. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Recently, he wrote and directed the critically acclaimed and award-winning series Save Me, which was nominated for 20 International Festival Awards. He's here today to talk about his latest show called Sort Of, which is now in its second season on CBC. The show stars Bilal Bag as a first-generation Pakistani-Canadian trying to navigate life as they embrace their non-binary identity and combat the cultural expectations that have been put upon them. Co-creator, executive producer, and co-showrunner Fab Filippo joins me to talk about the creation of Sort Of. You created Sort Of with Bilal. What brought the two of you together?
2: Uh, Bilal and I were acting in a play together at the Tarragon Theater. Uh, We both had our laptops open in the dressing room quite a bit. And we're both writing our own stuff. We started kind of just, you know, chatting about writing and pitching ideas back and forth. And it just kind of naturally evolved from that.
0: And what do you think it was uh, about the connection that you had that that made it such a an easy relationship to begin?
2: I mean, I would say primarily, our senses of humor are really alike. you know, and that's the kind of thing you can't. That's like I don't know. that's like chemistry. How do you quantify that? You can't you know, so like ultimately, yeah, the same kind of stuff made us laugh.
0: And when you were uh, setting out to, to put this show down on paper, tell me about the, the, the thought process of, of creating what it would be, because I think there's kind of a Ted Lasso feel to it. It's not Ted Lasso, but it's, got a, it's a show that's about kindness and it's about very big universal themes, but it's very specific in what it is. So tell me a little bit about the creation of the idea of it.
2: Yeah, you know, like like I said, Bilal and I had been sort of batting around some ideas. We had a whole different other sort of show pitch that we were kind of thinking that it was about that Bilal wasn't even in. And then I woke up one morning and I was like, I'm really just kind of interested in you, like your you being in this thing and and centering it around you and you being in it. And Bilal said, Well, why would I make a show about me with you? And then I was (laughs) like. (laughs) That's a really good question. And so I had to kind of go away and think about what, uh, you know, what it was that I I thought it could be. I came back and I sort of said, what if we're making this sort of cross-sectional show that's about how everybody's in transition and that transitions aren't all the same in this world or seen the same, you know? Uh, Bilal liked that idea and then said, well, if I'm me, who are you? And Mm. then and then the character of the dad was born. And then I was like, uh, and Bilal had mentioned that they'd been a nanny at one point in their life. And and once those elements came together, story just kind of fell from the sky. We were very conscious of creating a slightly gentler world, you know? And um, it was partly because the way trans characters are often portrayed in media, uh, has to do with either violence or or drugs or overly sexualized, and so we were really conscious of wanting to portray somebody in a bit of a gentler world, so we could see who they are, and not their circumstances.
0: Yeah, and it's it, I mean it's a fine line I think to to walk, uh, but I do love how the the show is, as I just mentioned, kind of well not kind of quite specific, but it's universal in its themes. It cuts across genders and and everything else here. Tell me a little bit about crafting that. Uh, was it a difficult path to follow or to find?
2: Yeah. I mean, all shows are difficult. <laughs> <laughs> like everything you try to make is hard. Uh, right. You know, we had a kind of idea that we brought to the season one writing room. Our writers were incredible. They helped blow it up for us. Often, I found, you know, it, it kind of, uh, it, you know, whenever we created a character, we would sometimes, for instance, create the character that you love to hate. And then we would give them this other dimension that would make you hate them less. You know, and so that's kind of how it was. Like, we would sort of build something, we would step away, we would look at it and go, is this the way our show does
0: this you're listening to fab Filippo on the richard Krause show find his show sort of on cbc television It was
2: important not to uh two-dimensionalize you know anybody um no matter how small the character was you know i think amanda cordner who's also in the show she plays seven you know said that the law demands kindness which i found it an interesting way uh, to put it but yeah like you know We the way we choose people to be a part of the show is, you know, we ask what lens, you know, are they bringing to the show? And then and then what energy are they bringing to the show?
0: And season two uh, is being described as the season of love. Uh, What does that mean to you? And, uh, you know, I guess the season asks, what does love look like? But but what does it mean to you to have it described as the season of love?
2: Yeah, it's 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 kind of like, you know, the way we had put it in in the document when we were first writing the season we were like subby experiences all the kinds of love. And you know, <laughs> it's not just romantic love, but it's family love and friend love and love of your work and like, you know, it really was is the theme. And then um you know, the the other aspect to it is kind of like subby having this sort of simplistic idea of what love is and then watching them realize and understand how complicated and messy Mm -hmm. it really is
0: and the show has won a ton of awards season one did including a peabody which is kind of cool must have sort of blown a few minds around there uh what do you think it is that's resonating uh, not just with the people that are handing out awards but with with viewers who are tuning in in very large numbers
2: Wow, you know, I think it's partly the the tone that you just sort of pointed out, that sort of gentler kind of world, um, while at the same time, we don't shy away from actually looking at sort of real life kind of issues. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I I think this tone, this sort of like comedic, dramatic genre mix, you know, I mean I've always loved this genre but when you're doing it right you know it feels it it feels seamless and what I love about the show personally is tonally we can swing from a real dramatic moment and then just make you laugh unexpectedly
0: well it doesn't seem to have that sitcom formula um, that it says, you know, you have to have a laugh every—I don't know what it is—ten seconds or every All two lines is. has to All be a laugh is. line, right?
2: It's every three lines and a yeah. button at the end of the scene.
0: That's right, and <laughs> and that that is thrown out the window here.
2: I mean, look, it's interesting because I, I I feel like it's not really about throwing it away as much as like knowing what what the what the form is mm-hmm. and then and then playing with it you know um i like like this mitch horowitz who did arrested development yep. Talked yeah. about arrested development having the exact same rules that the Golden Girls had, you know? <laughs> and and it's it's interesting because the sitcom itself is an amazing form, but yeah, we're looking for it to change and shift and move because the laughs that y- you used to get from a network sitcom, you know, feel false, you know. And and but even though th- that has its place, you know, but even like when you think about the one of the biggest sitcoms right now is Ted Lasso and it's Mm -hmm. very grounded humor and also also has dramatic elements to
0: it. That was Fab Filippo, co-creator, executive producer, and co-showrunner of the CBC television dramedy, Sort Of. Season two is on CBC television right now. Barry average my guest in this segment, has made 60 films, including critically acclaimed documentaries about the entertainment business like The Last Mogul, about film producer Lou Wasserman, Glitter Palace, about the motion picture country home, and Guilty Pleasure, about the Vanity Fair columnist and author Dominic Dunn. His latest film, The Talented Mr. Rosenberg, is a documentary about a lifelong con artist with a stunning history of heartbreaking betrayal, outrageous lies and elaborate masquerades. Here's Barry Average on true crime and why we're often so eager to buy a deal or a story That's too good to be true. So what do you think it is about true crime stories about swindlers? And we've seen a few of them, like the Tinder swindler. uh, There's the talented Mr. Rosenberg, your new film, that's really captured people's imaginations.
3: I think people are fascinated with the idea of certainly crime and, and those that get swindled. And it allows them for a brief moment to not be the victim and yet understand what it is to not only understand the psychology of of being a victim, but also the psychology of being the swindler themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, without being uh, taken for lots of money, people love this. Every pitch that I'm on with streamers around the world, is that's all they want now is true crime. And they'll say things like what even makes the film better is if if something happens while you're making the film as if the swindler somehow watches missing
0: <laughs> and your film though is interesting in the sense that it's not about uh the artist so much the person the confidence man here as it is about the art of it all it's about how it happened not so much about who so it doesn't glamorize him which i think is a very important distinction to make when you're creating a true crime story
3: Very difficult balancing act Richard because he is this particular guy this con man is very charming Mm -hmm. and seductive and comes across as educated with a pedigree. So it's easy to understand. Uh, People always say they won't get taken, but it's easy to understand why they do with somebody like that. Uh, And it doesn't matter whether you're educated or not. If you want to believe something, uh, and these people, these practitioners are so good Finding out your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities that they can take it in this particular story, whether it's global banks, well-established architects, restaurateurs, art galleries, it doesn't matter. They all fell prey to -hmm. this man without really doing their due diligence because he knew just enough to be dangerous in every possible category.
0: And what grabbed you about his story? You first read about it in a Toronto Life profile uh, from a number of years ago. And then I guess it, it stayed with you and kind of gestated for a little while. What was it about his story that really drew you in?
3: Well, as a documentary filmmaker, you're constantly uh, not only being approached, but there's ideas every six feet. So I keep right. files uh, of ideas uh, and and some of them germinated to something some of them don't but in in this particular case i read the piece of toronto life it was really to me a vanity fair quality piece of work that courtney shea had written and i filed it and then i just kept seeing this man walking around yorkville he was everywhere uh and and i and every time i'd sort of forgotten about the idea of making this film there he'd be again and i figured okay I'm going to go at it, and I approached him and said, "Look, I'm going to make this documentary. Do you want to tell your side of the story?" And he went, "Absolutely. I was treated viciously by that writer, and I and almost I'm sorry. It sounds like my Robert Evans impression. <laughs> everything, everything comes back to Robert Evans. Uh, they had a power, former head of Paramount, um, and so uh, I I just I just had to go at it again and and again. He we went and had lunch in Yorkville, and he was you know so intriguing. Now I left my watch and wallet in the car. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Incredibly interesting.
0: You're listening to Barry Averich on The Richard Krause Show. His film, The Talented Mr. Rosenberg, is available now on CBC Gem. What do you think he expected from that meeting? I mean, he wants to set the record straight, but here you have a guy who who lies for a living. He is a fact-checker's nightmare. And so what do you think that he, he hoped to get out of this? Because... Really, you could have and do expose him for being what he is. Did he think he could charm you and the camera into uh, rehabilitating his image?
3: 100%. I mean, he's a storyteller. He wanted to get the facts straight, which is a bit of a joke with him, because uh-huh. there are facts to get straight. Uh, there are no facts. Uh, so I, You know, he's a performer. He's a storyteller. I think he thought he can control the narrative uh, and, and come out looking pretty great. And as he says in the film over and over, you know, I, I accept responsibility. I always pled guilty, but that didn't mean he was going to stop doing what he does.
0: (laughs) And what do you respond or how do you respond when he says in the film, I'm not that bad this is a guy that set up a Ponzi scheme to defraud investors uh you know reported to be a a, a Swiss billionaire um you know took to dating sites to meet women and then would fleece them out of her, uh, out of their savings and yet he says eh, I'm not that bad
3: yeah well that 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 you know and having shown this at a couple of film festivals uh and screenings that that line always gets a huge laugh because mm-hmm. as far as he's concerned he hasn't murdered anyone so he's not that bad. Uh, and, you know, and of course, the other laugh that, you know, that that really resonates or the line that resonates and gets a big laugh is, you know, he tends to use two different names, Albert Rosenberg and Alan Rosenberg. And I said, well, when do you use one versus the other? He goes, when I do things legally, I use the name Albert. <laughs> what does that mean? You know? Yeah, and- he, he's a great character.
0: And why do you think it is that we're often so eager to buy into a story that is too good to be true? We've seen it over and over again. Ponzi schemes are not unusual and all these get rich schemes and things that you hear about, and yet people seem to fall for them. Why do you think it is that we set ourselves up in
3: that way? Well, you know, the question is whether you'd want to walk the face of the earth being an extraordinarily skeptical, uh, distrusting miserable human being constantly (laughs) or there there is a part of us that is wants to believe and and you know why do dentists invest in broadway musicals you know you just you you want to believe you want to try and do something different people want to in the romance scams you want to fall in love Mm -hmm. and you know and here's somebody that walks through the door who's charming and promises you a better life here's someone that you know is going to bring you a a ton of, of investment or return on investment on what you're working on. You just want to believe. I don't think we walk the face of the earth, you know, in, in a state of just. Uh, there are people that do, uh, but the state of just complete uh, defense mode of mm-hmm. that everybody's out to rip me off. Uh, we've met people like that and kind of boring. So uh, people fall for things. It'll never stop. I mean, you know, in my in one of the documentaries I made a few years ago, made you look, which we talked about this massive mm-hmm. art fraud. You know, how, how do billionaires and galleries and uh, and and uh, and and art collectors? Why did they fall for it? Uh, they, they you know, you fall in love with the art. You fall in love with the notion of of the being and doing something different. Uh, and, and as you know, as as uh, uh, as Miss Henriquez says in the film, who wrote uh, Wizard of Lies, if you you know, if you think you're going to on Bertie Madoff, if you think you're going to escape someone like Albert Rosenberg, Forget it. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, and then I find myself without a penny.
0: So what was I supposed to do? That was Barry Average, director of the documentary, The Talented Mr. Rosenberg. You can catch that movie on CBC Gem right now. A big thanks to Barry Averidge for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Fab Filippo. He's the co-creator, executive producer, and co-showrunner of the CBC original series Sort Of. Big thanks to him. And a big thanks to Lainey Wilson, who stopped by to tell us all about her newest album, Bell Bottom Country. You can find that wherever fine music is sold. Of course, as always though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.